Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled Non-Duality, Speaking the Unspeakable. It was given by Peter Cohen on Saturday, December 11th, 2021, via Zoom. Peter was the drummer for the Western Bell rock band, Liars, Gods, and Beggars, from 1988 to 1994. Since then, he has followed the non-dual thread of life, in locations including Alaska and Idaho, and in activities as a musician and nurse. He begins with a quote of the ecstatic speech of an Indian master, which reflects non-dual realization. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it, or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Peter Cohen. I want to start out with the quote that was on the announcement from the Indian sage and master Yogi Ramsurat Kumar. My father alone exists. There is nothing else, nobody else. Past, present, future, here, there, everywhere, anywhere. There's nothing else, nobody else. My father alone, my father alone. That is the only existence. Nothing else exists. Nobody else exists. Nothing is separate, nothing isolated. All in father, father in all. Near, nearest, far, far, farthest. Father alone. Past, past, very, very far away in the past. Present, future, far, far away in the future. There is only one existence of my father. Indivisible, total, whole, absolute. There is nothing else. Nobody else. So, speaking the unspeakable, this is an impossible subject to put into language, and it's a challenge that's faced by all teachers who are concentrated on the non-dual end of this continuum I'll talk about in a minute here. I'm just going to use my own synthesis among teachers that have been the primary influences for me. So I'll be using very few quotes. I'll be mainly speaking my own way of putting all these ideas together. So we have a lot of ground to cover to get from here to here. So non-duality, it's another way of saying God or reality or truth. You could wrap it up by saying all there is is consciousness. Consciousness is all there is. Or you could use the word father as Yogi Ram Sarat Kumar used. Doesn't matter what word you use. The point is that there's only one thing going on, 
in the universe. And it's not a thing. That's what makes it so hard. It's not a thing because as soon as you say thing, it implies a subject and an object, the thing being an object. So if I say it's a thing, already we're caught in the jungles of language. The mind itself, the human mind, is a dualistic machine. It can only think in terms of opposites, dualities. You can't even imagine an up if you didn't have a concept of down. You couldn't imagine a here if it weren't for some idea of far, etc., etc. It's not a mistake. It's just the nature of mind. It's what the mind does. The mind is dualistic, and the realm of appearances is the realm of dualistic subjects and objects. But non-duality as a path speaks to a certain way of approaching, even though you can't articulate it exactly, non-duality is a way of approaching this ineffable whatever it is. And it's not an it. (laughs) Even though it started in India as Advaita Vedanta, Advaita means not to. And I'll be speaking not in the traditional Vedantic language or concepts, but only in what's been introduced in the West in particular as just Advaita or not to, non-duality. You can't even say it's unity because unity with what? With what else? What else? What are the two things that are being unified? So even unity is not, I mean, that's why the the old rishis called it not two. They were very crafty. They didn't call it one because that implies a two or multiples. They didn't call it unity because that implies something being joined with something else. But since there's only one thing or not thing, They called it not to, and that was as close as they could get to it. To give you some idea of the difficulty with this, in Orthodox Judaism, they avoid saying the name of God. Instead, they say Adoshem, the name. Shem means the name, because even to name God is to objectify it as a person, as a being, as something else above in the sky. My root teacher, Lee Lozwick, one of his sayings that he had a t-shirt, God does not live in the sky. So here's another example. Lao Tse, who wrote the Tao Te Ching, starts off this treatise by saying something like, I'm misquoting probably, that the Tao that can be spoken is not the true Tao. But then he goes on for 100 pages talking about it. Even he couldn't resist speaking about it. If you do it well, if you can speak it well, which I think some of the teachers that I've been fortunate enough to meet articulate, it's worth doing. And the mind does have a place. The mind can't comprehend it, but it has a place in this game of non-duality. And with regard to all that, I just want to say that nothing that I'm going to be saying tonight is true. It's all going to be what they call, in the jargon of non-duality, they're called pointers. So these are all going to be pointers. I'm going to hit a pointer and then circle back around to it in a different way. And hopefully by the time I'm finished, I'll have hit all the pointers in a way that will make some sense. So speaking of non-duality or Advaita as a path, as a way of 
entering the spiritual domain. I see it as a continuum. On one end, you have, just to oversimplify, your institutional religions that have strong dogmas and have been institutionalized as churches or temples or whatever, mosques. And then on the farther end, you have these teachings that have been called direct teachings. Non-dual teachings are often synonymous with the term direct teachings. And the reason why they're called direct teachings is because they are specifically focused only on the nature of reality, on the nature of truth. And they don't concern themselves with anything else. And there's a reason for this that we're going to hit on here. But it's the paths or the teachings that are on the far end of the continuum, on the non-dual or direct end that I'm going to be speaking from. So the focus of these direct teachings can be boiled down as questions like, who are you? What is truth? What is ultimately real? Period. Now, one way of saying consciousness or father that's often used is awareness. Awareness, which means the presence of that which is aware or an aware presence. And that's usually referred to as I. When you use the word I, what you're referring to is an aware presence. Everything that appears to you in the form of thought, feeling, sensation, or perception is an object to that aware presence. The phenomena of perceptions, sensations, thoughts, feelings are passing by. What's in back of all these phenomena is this aware presence. And here I am going to use a quote because I think, well, first of all, this guy is, his name is Rupert Spira, and he is, in my opinion, probably the, the most precise in his way of articulating or speaking the unspeakable. He's a British teacher, and his writing is very, very clear. He's talking about the presence of awareness here. He's going on by saying, in fact, this knowing of our own being, which is another way of saying aware presence, is so simple and obvious, and above all, so apparently insignificant that it is usually overlooked. This forgetting or overlooking of our most intimate being, although apparently such a small thing, in fact, initiates almost all of our thoughts, feelings, activities, and relationships, and turns out to be the source of all unhappiness. The history of humanity on an individual and collective scale is the drama of this loss of our true identity or overlooking of our true identity and the subsequent search to regain it. So that sums up why the paths that are on the far end of the non-dual spectrum or continuum exclusively focus on this one thing. Because without having some deep understanding of what this fundamental or usually overlooked thing or not thing is, from that ignorance or overlooking, ignorance would be the Buddhist term, doesn't mean being stupid, it just means not paying attention to or overlooking. When you overlook that, 
you've set yourself up for the whole drama of seeking to regain it, which is the whole drama of, of the human play, which basically is the play of suffering and the play of trying to uh, become happy, become peaceful, become loving. That is why I wanted to quote that from Rupert Spira, because it is, for me, a very powerful way of explaining why this is such a fundamental aspect of, well, it's not even an aspect, it is the whole ball game of spirituality, ultimately, in my opinion. <laughs> Here's another quote from Lee Loswick. Lee says, there is only ever one problem, the presumption of separation. Everything else is an extrapolation of the one problem. Everybody knows that, and everybody has the same problem. Everything else we think to be problems are facets of that. So the presumption of separation would be another way of saying the overlooking of that aware presence. So the goal, if you can use such a term, to the non-dual path is to be that. Everyone already is that aware presence. It's a given. But the task at hand here is to be that knowingly. It's all well and good that awareness, aware presence is your true nature. But as one teacher puts it, that's been a big influence on me, it doesn't do a hell of a lot of good unless you know it, unless you come into that knowing, knowingly. So I want to make just a disclaimer here. I'm not going to be arguing here that direct paths offer the seeker any particular advantage. Maybe, maybe not. When we talk about the different pointers coming up here, you come to your own conclusions about that. So here we go. One image that I particularly like does come from Hinduism, and it's this idea of Shiva being the absolute, unmanifest, infinite potential. It's an infinite potential that doesn't have any qualities to it. It's unmanifest and whole, absolute. Coming out of Shiva, arising out of Shiva, is Shakti, which is the creative aspect of the universe, which gives rise to all manner of phenomena, from the smallest atom to the universe, to the galaxies, the stars. Ken Wilbur uses the term eros to describe Shakti, because it is the creative aspect of existence. But the thing about Shakti is that she is usually referred to as a she is not separate from Shiva. There's no separation there. Shakti is simply the creative aspect of Shiva. All of these are just simply ways of having some way of the mind encompassing these unspeakable concepts. So we have Shiva and Shakti, and then Shakti enters into human consciousness. And the way, the, just simply the function of the way the human nervous system is set up, you have what is often called maya or illusion. And human beings forget their divine nature. The phenomena of thoughts, feelings, perceptions, and sensations become very, very attractive to minds, to, to this nervous system in humans. And one of the prime functions of this 
seduction, you might say, has been called by one teacher that I like very much, the FSA or the false sense of authorship. That's a key concept, key pointer. There's nothing essentially bad or wrong about the human predilection for sensations and perceptions and thoughts and feelings. If there is an error, and it's not really an error, we'll come to that, it's that people take on the role, usurp the role of agency, of authorship in what they do and what they think. We all, most of us, are conditioned from about the age of two and a half to think that we originate, that we author our thoughts and our feelings and our actions and our deeds, everything. It comes from us. We are the author of all that we create. And that's the FSA, the false sense of authorship. I really like that particular phrase. So that is true. The Maya and the FSA are what's happening, but it's only from the perspective of the body, mind, and the world. From the perspective of phenomena, the FSA and Maya are what's going on. It's not what's really going on. Everything here is paradoxical. It's all a matter of perspective. From the perspective of you as body-mind, the FSA is functioning and Maya is having a field day. From the perspective of the presence of awareness, it's seen clearly that the play of the body-mind and of the FSA is not true. It's just, well, the word play, it's often used. Play or one teacher I know uses the word the three-dimensional, four-sensory TV show. That is the realm or the arena of most body minds in humanity. They are the characters in this three-dimensional, four-sensory TV show. And what's functioning, here's another term, what's functioning in that realm of phenomena and the TV show is karma. Karma, in this sense, in the sense that I'm using it, does not refer to past lives or reincarnation. It refers to everyone, even coming from the most advantageous of origins, coming into embodiment is a shock. And the nervous system, over time, develops layers of protection. And these layers of protection take on very characteristic forms, depending on each individual. So the challenges that one faces in life, if you look, if you examine these challenges, you will see that they are repetitive. Nothing is ever new. The challenges might take on new aspects over time, new uh, descriptions, but at base, they're always repetitious. And that's what I mean by karma. It's this repetitious cycling of challenges that are confronting these layers of protection that the nervous system or the human child started to develop. Actually, the protection started with some of us in utero, but the actual self-awareness of these protections begins at around two and a half. And these are normal developmental stages. So again, there's nothing wrong with this. And the role of karma, of the challenges repeating, is to Here's where I'm going to be hitting a number of points at once here. Karma is not a punishment. If you keep in mind that always aware presence 
or the divine in us is there, there are two ways of expressing this. One is personified and the other is more abstract. Let's go with the personified first. If you think of the divine as one teacher I know calls it the ordainer, or you could call it the beloved, has set up this whole drama, this whole TV show of karma as a gentle, as gentle a way as possible. For some of us, it doesn't seem very gentle, but has set it up specifically to penetrate the defenses that have built up over time around the self-identified person. So on the one hand, you have the beloved or the ordainer setting up the whole karmic system. Again, it's not really that's how it is. These are just ways of thinking about it. But it is useful for me on a very practical level just to think of the ordainer or the beloved as setting up these karmic challenges in the mood of kindness, in the mood of love, in the mood of waking us up to our true nature as present awareness or consciousness or father. The other way that's not so personalized as calling it the ordainer is to call it totality. If you think of totality as being a vast web where everything is in relationship with everything else, there's a quote here I want to use. I'm jumping ahead of myself, but this is a good place to put in this quote. This is a quote from an Indian Advaitic teacher named Ramesh Balsakar, who was a student of Nisargadatta Maharaj. And his quote, which I really love, is, the universe is uncaused like a net of jewels in which each, each jewel is only the reflection of all the others in a fantastic interrelated harmony without end. So if you think of jewel as not being a thing, but only a reflection, it's a reflection of every other jewel, none of them being things, but all of them being just reflections or not just reflections, but reflections. So the whole thing, that's totality. It's a net of jewels in a fantastic interrelated harmony without end. So if you don't particularly like the idea of a personalized ordainer, you can think of this net of interrelated jewels and then view your own particular trials and challenges as being just part of that totality. It is inseparable from the whole totality. And you can't imagine the totality. The whole thing is completely unimaginable. But I find it a useful way to, even as a conception, to come to some peace with the karmic thread that you have managed to pick up in your own karmic existence. So you can either think of it as the ordainer that ordains everything. It's not the false sense of authorship. It is the ordainer who's doing everything. Or you can think of it as, in a non-personified way, as the totality. Either way, the authorship does not belong to you as the body-mind. It belongs to either this ordainer or this totality, whatever that is, this, this fantastic interrelated harmony without end. So moving backward here to the backward step, almost all non-dual paths in some way or another, the pointers almost always refer to what in Zen it's called the backward step. And I like that term. 
And you can actually do this. You can do this even while you're sitting here. In fact, I'd recommend it. You back up until there's absolutely no separation between you, I, and the awareness that knows this I. You just back up. And here's some examples. All there is to thought, to a thought, any thought, is thinking. And all there is to thinking is knowing or awareness. All there is to emotion is feeling. And all there is to feeling is the knowing of it. All there is to perception is perceiving. And all there is to perceiving is the knowing of it. All there is to a sensation is sensing. And all there is to sensing is the knowing of it. You can see how it's backing up each step. The last step would be to take away the of it. It's not the knowing of it. It's just the knowing. So what is it that knows the knowing? And if you examine that, and this is all a matter of inquiry, what is it that knows, talk about all there is to a thought is thinking, and all there is to thinking is the knowing of it. If you take away the of it, and you just stop at knowing, what is it that knows the knowing? It is the knowing that knows the knowing. I know that (laughs) that's an awkward sounding sentence, but it actually comes closer to the truth as any conception. All we ever know is known by awareness or by knowing. Rupert Spira calls it the light of pure knowing. Light is always invoked in non-dual paths because it's seen that awareness is the light that lights up phenomena. All phenomena, all the play, the three-dimensional, four-sensory TV show is lit up. What is it lit up by? It's lit up by awareness. So the light of pure knowing, again, is the knowing of knowing itself. Or another way of putting it is being aware of being aware. And that, again, is Another example of the backward step, being aware of being aware. If you're aware of being aware, you just can't back up any further. That is about as far as you can go, as they say in Oklahoma in the uh, musical. They've gone about as far as they can go. And that's what we call I. I is what we call when you've backed up as far as you can go. When you're aware of being aware, you are at I. Now, strange thing about being aware of being aware is that it produces a very powerful intimacy with, first of all, yourself, but all things, because then you realize that everything and everyone shares that same awareness. And when we refer to people, ourselves, or others, that intimacy we commonly call love. And when we talk about objects or the world, that intimacy we often call beauty. So ultimately, even though it may sound very abstruse and abstract and heady, ultimately non-duality or this being aware of being aware gives rise to love and beauty and peace. We will circle back around to that. Some more pointers before I do that, when you back up as far as you can go to I, time turns out to be only now. The whole imagining of linear time, past, future, 
is in the domain of the play or the TV show. When you back up to I, it's apparent that there's only now. And now is not in time. Now is out of time. And it's eternal. Eternal is the word we give to the now that's not in time. And the same with space. The whole idea of here and there, again, is in the domain of phenomenality of the TV show. Space becomes only here. And here is, again, outside of the whole realm of spatial dimension, but it's only here, the only word we can find for it. And same with cause and effect. There is no such thing as cause and effect because cause of any one thing, you imagine this totality being the the web that's infinite and vast interrelated jewels. The cause of any one thing is everything else. You cannot ever find, certainly we do it all the time, we say that such and such cause such and such. But it's easy to deconstruct that. I won't get into the deconstructing of it right now. I'm just giving an overview of pointers. But if you look into it, it's very easy to deconstruct the idea that any one thing is the cause of anything else, that everything is the cause of everything else. And then along with that comes the sense of doership. If the cause of any one thing is everything else, then the whole idea of the FSA, the false sense of authorship, falls away too, because there is no doer. How can there be a doer if the cause of any one thing is everything else? So the typical steps that are often followed in a non-dual path of doing the backward step, a lot of you might be familiar with the practice of being witness, standing as the witness to all phenomena. So you, you're this witnessing presence and you're witnessing everything that's arising in the space of phenomena. And that's often called the witness. That's just the first step, though. The next step is that you realize that awareness is not only the witness of everything that arises, but it pervades everything that arises. So first you have the witness as a separate objective observer, awareness takes that place. And then you have awareness taking the place of pervading all phenomena. And then finally, that collapses and you become aware that awareness is the very substance of all that arises. There's no separation between that which arises and the awareness, the awareness that seems to be being being aware of it. But what you're aware of is not the phenomena, actually. What you're aware of is awareness itself. And it's taking the shape, it's taking the form of these phenomena. So all phenomena is just awareness taking the shape of X, Y, and Z. It's appearing as, right now, awareness is appearing as the phenomena in the Zoom square. So... What Rupert Spira says, I like this wording of it, find yourself as the knower of the known and then as the knowing in both, if that's at all helpful. Another way of putting the light of pure knowing is I am. That was a pointer used by Nizagadharta. Some of you are familiar with Nizagadharta Maharaj, very, very famous 
Indian teacher in the last century. So there are all kinds of analogies that teachers use. I've already given the one about the TV show, the three-dimensional, five-sensory TV show. There's the one about the current in the ocean, the ocean being the immovable awareness, and then you have the currents being analogous to the phenomena that flow in the ocean. The movie and the screen, the screen being awareness, the movie being the characters on the screen, and the screen is not affected at all. That's the main point of all these pointers, that the screen or awareness is never affected by the appearances on the screen. Whatever is going on in your life, whatever challenges, whatever traumas, your nature as pure awareness remains pure, divine, whole, beautiful, lovable, and loving, no matter what is playing on the screen. More pointers to this backward step. I like this one. Um, You can do this right now. Look at what you're looking out of. Of course, the eyeball can't turn around to look at itself, but you can look at what you're looking out of, and something interesting happens when you try that. I won't describe it right now, but again, I'm just giving you little pointers. Listen to what you're hearing out of. Feel into what you're feeling out of. All these are ways of, again, backing up. So back to karma for a minute. When I talked about its role as being that which is responsible for chipping away at the layers of protection that we have around us that have been developed Even in this lifetime, I won't even talk about past lives or reincarnation. Most non-dual teachers don't even address that because it's just not relevant to what we're dealing with right now, right here. One way of looking at this chipping away is to humble the character, to humble away the whole story of me, which includes all your beliefs, and most especially the belief in me. I'm talking about Peter here. So you have to get rid of your belief in Peter. If you can do that, then you're saved. You're enlightened. So before I get into the whole aspect of how non-duality relates to love and beauty, which I really do want to hit on, a word about enlightenment. Enlightenment in this vocabulary has nothing to do with the oscillations that are inherent in phenomenality. It's a transcendent leap outside of phenomenality altogether. So it's not a progression in any sense. And it's therefore, since it's not in phenomenality, it's not an event. Since it's not an event, it doesn't happen in the way that we conceive of a happening. There may be time to get back to that. Non-duality, therefore, is aiming at a transcendent leap, which is an ascending current. You can think of it as the ascending part of the current of spirituality. It's the arising up and out of phenomenality, which includes the body-mind. And that's what gives non-duality often a bad name in other spiritual circles. Well, what about the Holocaust? Or what about my own struggles? What about grief? What about loss? What about 
the feelings that we have about what is happening in our lives, a true realization of non-duality does not stop with the ascending current. It follows sometimes immediately, sometimes it can take a while before the descending current starts to happen, and that is a current in and down to the heart. The heart as symbolized by the physical heart, but it's only, again, a a representation. And that's when the heart with a big H opens and is illuminated, and that's what we mean by embodiment, embodiment of the non-dual realization, is when the the current descends and then it explodes in love and peace and all those nice words. The thing about it is that then you're not fooled by it. Then you can re-inhabit the body, but you're no longer fooled by it. You don't think that you're in a body. The body is in you. You are never in a body. The body is in you because the body is in awareness, which is the only thing there is. If you can think of the totality as white light, that's another way of looking at it. If it goes through a prism, it breaks up into all these wonderful colors, and that's what each being is. Each being is its own unique, unrepeatable shade of color. And that's the true body. The true body is the light body, and it is the body that is a light of your particular shade or glow. The thing about this, I'm going to maybe be a little blasphemous here, but one corollary to all this is that in this non-dual language, there is no such thing as faking it till you make it. Because for the descending current to work, the ascending current has to precede it. You have to be aware of being aware before then the descending current can open up the heart. Before the ascending current has transcended and you try to behave in ways that match certain uh, ideals like generosity or compassion or any ideal that you might have of what a good person should be or do, then you're actually, in this language anyway, or in this way, it's, it's counterproductive, it's blocking you. But if the ascending current has done its job and you now are no longer fooled by thinking that you are in a body, but you know that the body is in you, then being compassionate and generous and kind and all those good things comes naturally. It is the natural way of true nature to be that. That does not mean to say that if you're moved to be kind or compassionate, you shouldn't be, if, but only if you're not doing it out of a should. If you're doing it because it's part of your Conditioning, by the way, conditioning in this language is not a bad thing. Conditioning is part of what the ordainer has set up. We often in spiritual work think of conditioning as somehow bad or not the best. But if you understand that the ordainer has set the whole thing up, that it's part of the totality of all these jewels in interrelated harmony without end, then you realize that conditioning is part of it. And if it's part of your conditioning to be kind and generous and compassionate by all means. But if you're doing it out of some should, chasing some ideal of perfection, 
according to faking it till you make it, that in this way of imagining is counterproductive. I think I'm going to end with one quote from Nisigadarta. And again, he addresses the two currents, the ascending current to transcendence. The realization there is that I am nothing. The descending current gives rise to the understanding that I am everything. And that's why the first ascending current, I am nothing, usually precedes the descending current of I am everything. I've never heard in all my <laughs> delvings of anyone who's had the I, have, I am everything before they've had the I am nothing. So the way these two are related, Nisigadarta says, wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. And between the two, my life flows. And I think that's just a beautiful statement. And it tells you in a nutshell how the ascending current of I am nothing and the descending current of I am everything are one thing. Oh, there is actually one last thing, and that is another analogy. If you imagine that John Smith is playing King Lear in a play, and he gets so involved in it that he forgets that he's John Smith and he thinks that he's King Lear. Now, King Lear has awful karma, really a lot of trials and tribulations King Lear has. He's having a hard time. Now, what would it take for King Lear to remember that he's not King Lear, that he's John Smith, actually? If he does nothing, that's not an option because he'll just remain suffering as King Lear. But if he tries to find relief the way that people usually try to find relief through various activities and substances, they may provide him some temporary comfort, but they're not going to do the trick ultimately. The only thing that's going to do the trick ultimately for John Smith, or King Lear, is to examine the nature of his mind and to, by doing the backward step, remembering that he's John Smith. But it's not King Lear that remembers that he's John Smith. It's John Smith that remembers he's John Smith. Enlightenment doesn't happen to King Lear. John Smith awakens to being John Smith, who he was already. He was never anything else but John Smith. So the awakening of King Lear to John Smith is kind of a non-happening. It doesn't happen. It's a non-event because King Lear was never real to begin with. It was only John Smith who was ever the real being. So anyway, I wanted to make sure I touched on that before I ended up. So we have a few minutes here for comments, questions. Peter, thank you so much. That's really quite a concise consideration of non-dual teaching. Really. Any comments? Well, I have a question. I know you said that there's no such thing as cause and effect. But I'm interested in what would cause John Smith to even question that he wasn't King Lear? Well, it would be King Lear that would be questioning. And the reason why he'd be questioning would be he's suffering. I mean, that's why anyone usually questions. So suffering is the key, yeah? Tends to be. 
I mean, a teacher I love and respect a lot always says that it doesn't have to be. I think Lee used to say this too, actually, but that usually is what drives people to the search almost invariably. I mean, I wouldn't say 100%. Would you agree? Yes. Yeah, I do. I mean, that's the whole Buddhist thing, too. All life is suffering, so everything starts from that. Seems like there's no way out of suffering sans realizing that I'm John Smith. Yeah. About time you realize you're John Smith. (laughs) And there doesn't seem to be a way to do that other than to take a step back and see, be aware of awareness in a way. Or are there, I mean, what are the practices on the non-dual path? I would think meditation, perhaps. What would you say? I mean, are there any practices that support this recognition? Most non-dual teachers narrow it down to meditation and inquiry. Inquiry would be the active form like we've been doing here, the back step. And meditation would be the passive form of that same gesture. But there is one teacher that I respect a whole lot who does not recommend meditation at all, unless it's in your body-mind conditioning to do that. Again, it's a matter of not doing it out of a should. If you're meditating because you think you should as a good spiritual practitioner, then you're you're off. But inquiry is always universal. That's the general term for what we've been doing tonight. It seems that to me that concepts can get in the way. Like, so I understand this philosophy in some way, but that is far from the same thing as realizing it. You can't get there from here. One of the teachers that I've been with the longest and have a dear loving relationship with has put it that the best you can do is this being aware of being aware that he has different language for it. His language is to feel and sense awareness. If you practice that consistently, you have done all that you can do. The rest is not up to you. The rest comes from the other side of the gap, the chasm. One of the things that's interesting to me, Peter, is a little bit I know from the quantum physicists who basically say that without the knower, there there is nothing. And that the knower changes the nature of reality. In every case, you cannot have a scientific experiment that's not affected by the mind of the observer. And if there's no observer there, there's no way of knowing that the universe exists. Right. I find that to be really totally fascinating. It just really grips me. Yeah. There's an organization called Science and Non-Duality, or SAND, S-A-N-D, and they bring together spiritual teachers and quantum physicists and neurobiologists, mainly scientists in, in that realm, together for conferences. And they've been doing it for many years now, and they attract really big names in both fields, in both physics mainly physics and well-known spiritual teachers and bring them together because of this very thing. It's been recognized in cutting-edge science that what the mystics have been saying forever is the way it is. 
So I, I think sand, science and non-duality, they do wonderful work. Thank you. The other thing that I really resonate with in this teaching is that it brings me totally out of my old historical relationship to good and bad, evil and all of that, which is so ingrained in judgment. Yes. And so that whatever is arising is Shiva Shakti or Shakti is unfolding in all of these ways, even if yes. it's anger and even if it's fear and even if it's judgment, it's all her, you know, it's all the one. Yes. This really enlivens me. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Thank you for, for that. That's exactly right. I have just finished a book. It's called On the Mystery of Being, uh, Contemporary Insights on the Convergence of Science and Spirituality. And the, um, the editors are uh, Zaya and Maurizio Benazzo. Oh, yeah. Zaya and, and uh, Maurizio are the founders of SAM. Yes. Yes. Yeah. By the way, the single best book on non-duality that I know about, it's called Perfect Brilliant Stillness, and it's by David Kars. Interesting thing here, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the British actor Terence Stamp. He was a huge star in Europe, mainly Europe, for many, many years. There was this group in England that went around to celebrities and asked them if they had to bring one book to a desert island, what would be the one book that they would bring with them? And when the celebrity would tell them the book, they would be asked to do an audio recording of the book. So Terence Stamp was asked what book he would choose. It was Perfect Brilliant Stillness. Terence Stamp was in the movie Meeting with Remarkable Men. Anyway, you can get the audio version. His version is really beautiful because he's a trained actor. So he reads it very well, and it comes across very powerfully. Well, it seems like there are different paths to this. You're referring to Meetings with Remarkable Men, which is a movie about George Gurdjieff, who seemed to have lived from this place of awareness, of awareness. And he really worked with people in ways more than just meditation and inquiry. Yeah. For me, his way, it never resonated with me. The non-dual part of the continuum that I'm speaking from here does not require the kind of struggle that Gurdjieff seemed to really want people to be subjected to. This kind of really intense fighting with the ego. That's just not what's happening on the, the end of the continuum that, that I relate to anyway. So I can't speak to whether or not it's helpful for anybody. I don't know. Other questions or comments? We have a few minutes left. I was going to say, Peter, that although it's not identical with the Gurdjieff work, the study that I've been doing with self-observation is so parallel to this. Mm. I mean, it's this so much. I mean, we're talking about the essence of who we are. We are not a body that has a soul. We are a soul that has a body. And the whole practice is the recognition that what I am is presence and attention. And so the practice begins with just recognizing sensation, recognizing and standing in front of mind and emotion and recognizing how we identify with them and they're not real. They're just arisings and then moves into 
the recognition of the I of I am, but that's mm-hmm. the in the mystery. You know, yeah. so even Gurdjieff had exercises of breathing with relationship to I am. And what that is, it's not articulated. It arises from practice, from living with that. I see so many parallels, and not to say one is right or wrong, but in the simplicity of the methodology that I'm studying right now, I see so many interfaces. That's why I appreciate what you're talking about so much. Thank you. Yes, uh, uh, well, self-remembering in particular has the closest resemblance to what I'm talking about that I can see, yes. It seems like he was helping people, I guess, to realize that in the midst of life, all phenomena, to recognize one's identity, one's I, in the midst of you know, the relative world. And, and, and very challenging situations, of course. Yeah. You certainly have had experience as a drummer in the band <laughs> you were in to reside in peace and love and beauty in the midst of tremendous energetics is a task, a work task. We all resonate yeah. with what paths we yeah. resonate with. And it's great to hear you speak about the one that you resonate with. It's true that everyone is different in what's going to resonate and blessings to all of it and all of you and all of us. (laughs) Thank you.